I grew up in a mid-sized town in the middle of nowhere and there wasn't actually much to do when you were 14, 15, 16. So my generation, we were either interested in soccer, in cars or in art. And I decided to drop soccer. And my early interest in art was more about the, the history of the place. And the place called Kassel has a great collecting tradition. So initially as a kid, I was interested in what's been collected there and why. And, and of course, I was drawn into it. And it was something that really hooked me and I never let go. Dirk Boll is the president of Christie's in Europe, India, Russia and the Middle East, to be precise. Boll oversees the world's top auction house in a huge and prestigious market, having previously worked for Christie's in Switzerland and his native Germany. Boll was born in Kassel in 1970 and became a firm fan of the groundbreaking and curatorially vibrant documenta art biennales that take place in the city every five years. He went on to study law and art management and is also a professor for art management at the University of Hamburg. We're not juggling Christie's and that professorship. Boll is busy in his study writing books. Art for Sale, a candid view of the art market, and auctioneers who made art history are both forthright studies of the state of the market, while his book on the fabulous art collection of Zurich's Kronenhalle restaurant is equally mouthwatering for lovers of painting and classy European gastronomy. I'm Robert Bounds, and this is The Big Interview with Dirk Boll. Dirk, thank you very much for coming into the studio live and in person. Really nice to have you here. And I wanted to kick off, if I may, by talking about your most recent book, which translates, the title translates in English as What's Different This Time? And I don't want to start with crises, but it does sort of track crises in the art market and turning points and all the rest of it. Whereabouts are we now? I mean, we got so used to doing everything online in the pandemic. Have we made a sort of huge shift towards online in the art world? Well, we have indeed. So mm. I think for the art world, we can say we are in recovery phase. I hope that's true for the pandemic in general, but we don't know. We've seen a great shift towards online and we've seen a great change in consumers' behavior. It's a funny one, isn't it? And it's changed the nature of art itself. I mean, you know, we don't want to endlessly talk about NFTs and all these kind of new things. But the way that people buy art has obviously through the centuries has changed the nature of the art itself. Are you seeing that? What's, you know, what's being consigned with Christie's? Are you seeing that? that well, yes and no. You mentioned NFT. That's, of course, a very exciting new development and gives an interesting new technology mm. to artists. And it'll be interesting to see how that will be used in present and future. The um, art we are selling at Christie's is normally a bit more historic because we are secondary market. So it takes a certain moment in time until things come through to us. So it's a bit too early for us to say we already feel how the crisis has changed the production of art. We start feeling that, we see it in our cutting-edge contemporary art auctions, but the vast majority of our pieces is older than five years, so there is no influence visible yet. Yeah, but you're, you, you're in a wonderful position to sort of have an overview on the patterns of taste, I suppose, in, you know, at, a, at a big auction house like Christie's. A dizzying array of stuff comes in and out of your doors and, and sale rooms. What sort of... I wonder if it's possible to kind of describe the era of taste that we're in at the moment. I, I, know love, I love your curated sales, for example, the things that are like artist studios or their people's apart, their reproductions of people's apartments. The whole, the whole. But where are we? Are we, are we wanting to buy house worths of things, or are we? Into well, as, as always, and you see it as, at, at Monocle as well. There is no one taste fits all. What we see is that the younger generation is more and more interested in art that reflects their lives mm -hmm. and, and the world they live in. And so the interest 
grew more towards contemporary art. This is something we've we've seen since 20, 30 years on all markets, on the primary market, on the secondary market, and globally. Secondly, globalization meant the markets turn towards art that is understood, appreciated, and collected globally. That's the nature of it. And that means that you see the same Hermes bag in Paris, in New York, but also in Shanghai and Singapore nowadays. And that's true for art as well. And and that is one explanation why prices have gone up that much in the past 25, 30 years. But then, as always, when there is a mainstream development, you have people who say, I don't want that. And there is a group of younger people who, or a number of younger people who say, well, if if a, a significant work by an emerging artist nowadays costs me as much as a mid-career artist's established museum quality piece, mm-hmm. I might turn towards this. And so we see a bit of renewed interest in old masters, in, in old sculpture. And then, especially now, post-pandemic, if, if I'm allowed to use that phrase, people will consider different ways of living and that high-density environment in, in big cities like London, New York, Hong Kong, you name it, with small apartments, not much space, is sometimes traded in for whatever, the cottage in Dorset. And so we see a re- renewed interest in country house goods, in, yeah. in, in, in historic kind of simple um, interior pieces. And you mentioned the, the, the collection sales, the house sales. This is what people are really fascinated by because you see the so-called eye of the collector. You see the whole environment, the atmosphere of a place someone lived in, and, and people love that. Yeah, people love that. Something, it's kind of like a little bit of nosiness, right? It's kind of like a far more tasteful National Trust property where you can buy all the things. It's pretty beguiling. It's not necessarily much more tasteful. I'm sure you've just browsed our website and, and flipped through the Jasper Conran sale catalogue, yeah, nice. which is upcoming. And of course, that's kind of the height of country house, crisp, fairly contemporary, I would say, style. But the fun of these sales is that it's it's always a mixed bag. You always find kind of the odd thing you happen to like. And therefore, for these sales, we have real viewing. So people can come and can look at the pieces. They work a bit less well online only, contrasting to, say, much of the contemporary artworks that actually communicate themselves well online only. And you mentioned in your answer the idea of, of these things versus kind of emerging artists and stuff. Tell me about your relationship with the primary market, actually, and how you sort of, we've talked about taste making and things, but how you learn about new stuff. I mean, you, you're touring presumably a lot of exhibitions, museum shows, gallery visits and all the rest. Yeah, of that's those, what right? we all do because, yeah. I mean... Unless you're interested in art, you wouldn't end up in an art market. <laughs> I'm relieved. Business. I'm relieved to hear that, Turk. No, 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 no. That's 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 what drove us all in there. I mean, of course, a large company like Chris's, we have support departments, and in these support departments, you need a different type of expertise. But um, you wouldn't come across Chris's as a corporation if you weren't interested in art and its market. So, in a sense, we all go out, we all visit museums, and it's our daily job to speak to art specialists, to curators, to museum people, to collectors. And um, that's actually the seasoning of it. It's it's not the administration of a sale. Of course, a successful sale is very exciting and the tension in the auction room is fantastic, but it's about the people and it's about the artwork. Yeah, yeah. There's something lovely about that, that kind of part, part of being in the room when something's being created as well, which is obviously something that galleries specialise in more than the auction houses, but there is something wonderful about being able to reach out and touch that stuff. Be senior in an organisation, as I said, where all that stuff passes in and out of your doors. It's a lovely 
and kind of I'd have thought kind of flattering environment to be in, right? To be well, it's a it's a great privilege, I have to say. And, yeah. And the wide range of Christie's offers makes it really interesting because every day I leave my office and across our exhibition spaces, there is something else to see, and it's wonderful to see. It's it's kind of forced upon you, and you have these wonderful art experts working for Christie's, and you and you know them, and you can go and can say, listen. Tell me, what is this sale about? What's your mm-hmm. best piece? What's the most complicated piece? What's the most underrated, underestimated piece? What is it you need to sell because, etc., etc.? So that's a privilege to have access to all, all of that. There's something kind of nice and obviously transparent, which you don't get when you maybe go into a gallery, where you can look through an exhibition catalogue and it has a rough estimated price on it. I've always wondered how on earth these prices are arrived at and you know if there are processes within the auction house by which these prices are arrived at of course there is a a preparational part which is nowadays partly replaced by machine learning Mm -hmm. and this is this is putting together background information and historic prices around an oeuvre around a period in an oeuvre around a medium a particular year etc so what my colleagues the art specialists do they prepare by putting together or asking the computer to put together like an expose about the work. And the computer is learning and and gets better and better and puts together information and presents it. And then the price is, of course, checked by our colleagues. And this is the colleagues who are working with clients. And these are the colleagues who are working with the artwork. The colleagues working with clients, they try to pin down the demand for a certain work, especially on the high price level, because when you know that there are three Middle Eastern institutions, an American museum and a Chinese billionaire are looking for exactly that item, the price idea might be a different one. And last but not least, it's the specialist teams looking at the works. And this is always kind of the pricing is always a team thing. It's never one person saying this is X. So that means the team assembles, they look at the work, ideally in the original, and normally it happens when things come in for sale to prepare an auction, and the team walks from item to item. In the old days, this happened in an aisle at Christie's, and since St. James's has this geography, this goes up and down again, and therefore there is that historic term of hilling. So the team goes up the hill and down the hill. And hilling means you you inspect artworks and you discuss them as a team and um, you agree on kind of is it good or not and what what is the price. And that must be great fun. I'm not an art specialist, so I'm not involved in that. But it's also very important for the next generation of specialists to take over the expertise and to understand what it means to look at an artwork and what to look at, etc. And so that's a bit of a worry around that pandemic situation that we are now coming back, maybe 50% of our staff, that we have to make sure that these these moments in a career where you really have the learning opportunity as a young person is still established. Um, now, you're a cool guy. You've got a good... You've got Ooh. Dirk, Dirk Ball, wasted on the radio. You've got a good... <laughs> you've got a good... I mean, you know, I think we could... Um, if we had to guess, we'd go, this guy's he's in the art world. He's good. You've got, the, you've got a good look, good glasses, good cut of your jacket... Do you have to? Are you a different person for different sale weeks? Are you? Uh, do you have a different vibe for Old Masters Week in, in compared to if you're doing a big um, sale of sneakers or something? You know what I mean? I know what you mean. I think <laughs> I think we are we, we can all be different people to to different people and at different occasions. And and so am I. I don't think that I put on my sneakers for sneakers week, and there isn't such a thing actually. But um, 
the vibe is is indeed different but this is not about me or us as as colleagues this is about um the art and mm. what it does to you and what it does to a space and um the people who are attracted by that so the so the wider public is very different when we have our russian art sale when we have our old master sale or when we have cutting edge contemporary sales as we do in freeze week and that's yeah. that's interesting and you respond to that in some way maybe not in dressing <laughs> okay that's good the non chameleon like dirk bowl it's fine that's good <laughs> i like that and i wanted to get an idea of of your sort of early exposure to art i know you 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 grew up in 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 germany what 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 do you remember loving and 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 sort of seeking out when you were young dirk well germany is is a vast country i grew up in a in a mid-sized town in the middle of nowhere and there wasn't actually much to do when you were 14 15 16 so my generation we were either interested in soccer in cars or in art and i decided to drop soccer and my early interest in art was more about the the history of the place and the place called kassel mm-hmm. art people have heard that name before has It's a great a, yeah it's a good associations good associations has a great collecting tradition so initially as a kid i was interested in what's been collected there and why and and the and the depth of collections is amazing from antiquity through to whatever flemish painting of the golden century then as we all know every fourth year in my younger years now every fifth year we have documenta in kassel which is still the largest contemporary art exhibition on the planet and this is this is very kind of expansive because it takes over the whole town so you have not only outdoor sculpture but events and 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 kind of there's no one really not touched by that and of course i was drawn into it and as a older pupil i understood that contemporary art is actually what i wanted to know about and what i wanted to understand what it was i was looking at and what was clearly attracting me and um i had student jobs there and i had a look behind the scenes and it was something that really hooked me and i never let go yeah and also on a personal i know that you wrote a book about you moved to switzerland and you worked for christies in zurich and you wrote a book about the art at the kronenhalle yes. which is something of a house restaurant for this company at least when we when we go to switzerland and oh is it half good. of us are sort of based there and man that's good stuff um it's sometimes you don't know what's nicer the food or the art i mean it's a it's a wonderful place what 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 which two paintings from there would you sort of smuggle out under your arm as you paid the bill There's a beautiful Picasso portrait on paper in the bar. I adore mm. the bar. It's a, it's a wonderful space. I I I love the architecture. And the other painting I liked a lot, but it's no longer in Kronenhalle because it was in Gustav Zumstig's private apartment on the top floor of the building was a Matisse still alive with oysters. So these would be my two favorites there. Nice. But of course the 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 Miro, well there are so many great paintings in that space. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful. It's a it's a wonderful place. That feels like a that feels like a real haute bourgeois pleasure to be in that christies is a very smart service provider i suppose so you're always searching you're always you're servicing your customers how good are you at predicting what people want you can be just enough in touch with your client base and you can be slightly too much in touch with them and chase them around how do you kind of balance balance that why do you know there is there is not one client base um as a as a as a global company we have to service to quite a wide range of kind of archetypes of 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 clients and the the quality of our services lies in the quality of the staff and the teams who are in touch with these clients and who are 
clever and emphatic enough to understand who needs kind of the, the soft touch, who needs more hand-holding. And the information, the learning we have is what then forms our offerings. So it's the quality of the team and the ability to translate these experiences into strategy and offer that makes the quality of Christie services, I'd say. And how much, how important is, I mean, there's, there's such an interesting thing. So many people are interested in the backs of paintings, for example, more than the front, because you, you've got the story, the provenance, all the, all the owners that it's passed through and all the rest of it. How interested are you in that kind of storytelling and how important is that for getting people to consign works and getting people to them buy those works and creating a, I mean, a lovely story around these works? I think there are two sides to it. One side is a very pragmatic and also legal and risk limitation side, and this is provenance research. Mm. So we have to do provenance research to make sure that what we trade, we are actually allowed to, it hasn't been looted, etc., etc. And we have the largest provenance researching team in the industry, and everything you buy from us has been treated by them and, and went through their filters. That's one thing. And as you say, the, the back of a, of a historic painting tells you part of that story, but our team has to make sure there aren't any gaps we need to look into. And um, if there are gaps, we have to research and we have to make an assessment at some point. That's, that's the legal side and it's, yeah, it's risk limitation. The other side, the narrative, is more and more important because people are not only interested in the object, they're also interested in the, in the whole environment. And that could be the story of the artist, the story of the creation of the piece, the story of the collectors who had it, um, or the story of the vendor who actually puts it up for sale. And we are not always allowed to name these people. And sometimes it's not very interesting. So if I sold something and it was my piece, nobody would be interested. But if someone is famous for whatever, it can be intellectual fame, it can be collecting fame, it can be a tastemaker, it can be whatever type of prominence, people are usually interested in that. And you have those who want to buy memorabilia mm. and who want to buy whatever, the engagement ring of Marilyn Monroe we sold in her estate sale, and those who want to buy a Picasso that comes from a very prominent collection because they trust the the selection process of that late collector if it is an estate. So the, the backstories become more and more important um, and we spend more and more time and effort to communicate those. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of whiff of, there's a whiff of history and association that comes off certain artworks when you know that, I mean, I was thinking about, you know, there's a wonderful set of uh, Yves Saint Laurent, Pierre Berger. People want, people that want, people that bought items from that sale would have wanted, would have loved the, would have loved the artworks, but loved the association, feel that they wanted to live in that beautiful apartment in Paris or in Marrakesh. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's part of that, it's part of that as well. Have you had that moment where you've kind of, a work has, has, has come in through, the, through Christie's and you've kind of, you've felt the kind of waft of the richness of history, like a sort of big velvet curtain of history. Well, we have that regularly. And mm. the big velvet of history is, of course, more in the old master field where you can trace back paintings through the centuries. And sometimes we have, we have items Christie's has sold several times. Um, and James Christie, our founder um, in the 18th century, did the estate sale for the artist, for example, like a Gainsborough. Personally, I have to say, being that cool-blooded German, I'm more about the object. So it's the object that moves me more than the history behind mm. it that is interesting and might add a flavor. I'm much more about the piece itself. But um, since you mentioned the Yves Saint Laurent sale, I think this was a highlight in that, in that movement or in that, in that development because it was such an extraordinary collecting couple who was, well, not only 
knowing what they were doing and and obviously had deep pockets to spend, but also they were always kind of collecting against the trend. And as soon as a certain collecting field became mainstream, they would stop buying also because they considered it to become too expensive to buy in this mm. field. And that's absolutely extraordinary to see how they moved their collecting through non-fashions. Yeah. I mean, then again, we're in that the shifting sands of taste. Two, two men with fairly decent taste, you'd assume. I would say <laughs> <There>. so, yes. <laughs> but I mean, it's a funny one, isn't it? I mean, you. I wonder how much you at Christie's are led by the taste, but do you see um, do you see trends emerging from maybe their new collecting circles in China or something like that, or in South America? Do you see an appetite for maybe even historical works, but from a new collector base, and you have to, you know what I mean, you're reading, reading the signs, the early Absolutely. signs of these tastes. Absolutely, we do, we do. So predating a sale, of course, we have that network that communicates with collectors. And these people say, oh, if you happen to have this and that in your sale, let me know. And you speak to them. And it's not necessarily about transacting. It's about what have you seen? What was the best exhibition you saw this season? Have you seen this? Did you like that? So we, we, we try to understand as a corporation what our client base is interested in to be able to, to serve them, of course. And secondly, auction is a brutal distribution system because the demand needs to be there this very second. So you put something up, the auctioneer opens the bidding, and then the interest needs to be there. Um, and that means if it's not there, we are the first to know. Mm. Um, and it's a disaster because it means that all our filters, all our preparational work failed we are very proud that the sell-through rate at Christie's is very high. It's in the 90s. So um, in a sense, that is very reassuring because we are only rewarded commercially for items we are able to sell. But um, things that get out of fashion, we know the next morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a, as you say, there's a brutal reality to that, isn't there? And the, I'm glad you mentioned the auction itself. It makes good theatre. It is, it's, a, it's a piece of theatre. A lot of that stuff's moved online, but there's nothing Nothing makes up for the being in the room, raising your paddle, all the rest of it. Have you got a particularly memorable moment, Dirk, of being in the room when something's sold? Because we're looking at the mechanics and mathematics of desire wrought in a live environment. It's an amazing thing. What What was something where the sort of hairs rose on the back of your of your neck? Yeah, of course I had several of these moments yeah. because when you when you when you work with a collector and and they want to buy or sell you are involved and sometimes these are relationships that are building up over over many years and decades even and so you get quite close to these people and some become even friends and then sometimes friends want or need to sell something so there is a certain emotional involvement in 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 many items or or sales of items without these items being extraordinary valuable or whatever news uh, hitting then what i absolutely adore is the story of our lead auctioneer Jussi pilkenen who is the man with the golden hammer who has mm -hmm. sold many more world records than any living auctioneer and um, of course so many people refer to his sale of the leonardo da vinci salvator mundi mm -hmm. painting 400 million is the bid here in the sale room at 400 million with Alex Rotter. The bid is here at 400 million dollars for the Salvatore Mundi at 400 million. Francois is out. Are you sure, Francois? At 400 million then. Thank you all for your bidding here and on the telephone to my left. And of course here, Loic and Francois. It is with Alex Rotter at 400 million. Leonardo Salvatore Mundi selling here at Christie's. $400 million is the bid, and the piece is sold. 
He said that sale room must have hosted kind of between three and five thousand people. Considered how often I hear that story that people were in the room. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there is an urban myth around that, <clears throat> and and of course you never forget kind of your first auction. You never forget your first telephone bidding, which went terribly wrong in my case. And you have these moments of hair raising, even when you remember them. It's it's tense and exciting. It, I guess you kind of don't know whether you're the star or the director of the program also, right? You can get into the limelight for the wrong reasons, I suppose, in this situation. Yes, but of course, staff bidders like us, less so, it's the auctioneer. And it's, it's their talents, it's their skills of reading the room, of understanding who needs a bit of pressure or time pressure, who needs to be given a bit more of time to reconsider and to inspire them to make the next step, to give another bid or not. In order to, we've got a really wonderful overview of how Christie's works and these shifting sounds of taste, excitement of being in the auction room and all the rest of it, and even which paintings you'd steal from the lovely Cronenhaller restaurants in Zurich. <laughs> what, what about at home and in, in, in the office, Dirk? What hangs... What do you have hanging behind your desk at Christie's? Well, behind my desk at Christie's, there is currently an empty space because we are refurbishing. That's how we use the summer break. <laughs> no, but what will go up again is a work by a German photographer, Tobias Ziloni. It's, it's a petrol station. It's a triptych. You can see it, if you want to see it now, you can go to the um, Volkwang Museum in Essen, mm -hmm. uh, where this artist has a retrospective show. He's a young photographer, I admire a lot. I admire his work. And we have been collecting his work for the past 20 years. So you would also find it in my home. Nice. And where do you go for inspiration? You've got such an embarrassment of riches in Germany, such a wealth of collecting and, and great historical collections there, public and private, obviously. Where do you go to sort of seek inspiration? Well, for work, obviously, but for pleasure. Wherever you go, when you're into art, you check out what is there to be seen. And when you're part of that world, you want to see the museums of a place. Mm -hmm. So you prepare your trip and you go to public museums. And once you enter the commercial art world, you also understand there is a second level of things you can see and places you can access for free, by the way. And so it's usually the, the, the one, two, three museums of a place and the one, two, three galleries. I mean, we are not talking New York where we have 800 galleries and of course you can't cover them. But um, And then after a while you start following artists or you start following gallery work and you, you follow the selection process of primary market galleries or you have a favorite museum and you just say, I, I go to that museum no matter. And so these are the places. Yeah, but it must be frustrating walking around a museum where you can't just buy the things. Well, I can tell you <laughs> I, I, I can't buy kind of 99.9 .9. <laughs> Uh, of the items I see in galleries or, or auction houses. So that's no news. It's not, it's not a frustration. Totally not, no. All right. Uh, well, Dirk Boll, thank you very much indeed for talking us through Christie's, Cronenhaller. And also, it's nice to know where you walk around and gain inspiration. I think it's, um, it's sucker to us all to know that there's things that... There's obviously lots of stuff um, that hangs uh, on, on some elegant walls around the world that is also not for sale. There's always. Thank Thankfully. You. <laughs> Dirk Boll, thanks very much for joining us on The Big Interview. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. From me, Robert Bound, thank you very much for tuning in. <laughs>